Welcome to the Hallowed Halls. I'm Danielle, the Armchair Scholar, and this is my guide to the strange and unusual things that capture the imagination, that make your skin crawl, and that haunt you long after you've walked out of the movie or put down the book. Let's take a journey through film, television, books, and the works of actual scholars to get a better look at the tropes, legends, lore, and mythologies that make up these weird worlds and their inhabitants. Welcome back to our special episodes for the month of October, wherein I'm tackling my first universal monster of the podcast, Dracula. As I mentioned in the previous episode, I wanted to do something befitting the time of year that would be just as grand as the month itself, and there really is nowhere better to start than this member of the universal group. I also mentioned before that we're not going to forget about our other monsters, and they too will get their time in the moonlight. If you want to know more about that, join me at the end of the month, wherein I will go into more detail about what I have planned for that. As for this month's monster, there is a lot to cover, and as I've previously mentioned, I cannot go over everything. There are far too many books, movies, shows, comics, games, anime, and all manner of other media that has the Dracula name attached to it, that I wouldn't even be able to cover it if I had a year. As this is the case, if you are still wanting to know more, I am going to include extra links with the show notes so that you can get other people's take on this character and help give you a little more information than I can go over. But on that note, let's just briefly recap what we already know in regards to vampires and Dracula. Last week, we had a look into the history and possible origin stories for the vampire, going over some real cases where the bodies were treated to folkloric remedies in order to treat mysterious or difficult ailments in their communities. As with the topic at hand, this was just a glimpse of the world of vampires of folklore, and if anyone would like to return here later, please let me know, as there is much to explore. But since this is a look at Dracula, our foray into history would hardly be complete without looking at the warlord, whose name became a completely new terror. Vlad Tepish of Wallachia was named Dracula because of a title signifying that his father, Vlad Dracul, was a member of the Order of the Dragon. Far from the count that he would become in fiction, this historical warlord could be incredibly cruel, and though his blood-soaked reign didn't last for very long, as far as tyrants go, he did fill his time as ruler with an incredible amount of gruesome and terrible things. His infamy and his reputation as an intimidating figure managed to carry that name from the 1400s when he died to the 19th century when an Irish writer and an overworked manager penned a work that would overshadow both the warlord and everything else that writer would do. For this episode, we're going to focus our attention on how Dracula came to be what it is now, and how it managed, even before it was adapted for the stage or screen, to begin splintering into new glorious tales of the Count. We are going to get to both Dracula as a figure and a pop culture phenomenon, as well as how the rest of the cast has shifted and changed to adapt to what the main vampire has been made to represent in another coming episode. That said, in order to understand how and why this figure changed, we're going to have to look at Dracula and friends in their element, the book that started it all. 
Before we can understand the choices that the characters made, and the reason that this book exists, we have to understand a bit more about the man who wrote it. Today, the name Bram Stoker is synonymous with the man who gave us the most famous vampire in all of English literature. Dracula, published in 1897, garnered what might be considered a bit of a middling response when it first came out, but according to Elizabeth Miller, the book has never been out of print since its release. The story would live on and spark many adaptations, rip-offs, reimaginings, and unofficial sequels, but upon its release, it was a gothic thriller about the anxieties of Victorian England and the encroaching influence of outsiders into their way of life, represented in the form of a strange vampire count. Of course, this is mostly coming from a modern point of view, complete with the gift of hindsight and the ability to see the past as a whole time period, as opposed to something we're living through that is changing under our feet. The truth is that at the time, mostly this was just an entertaining book written by an Irishman who had gained a lot of fairly well-known friends and acquaintances through his job managing the actor who had taken over the Lyceum Theatre in London. In his biography, Something in the Blood, David J. Scal wrote that Stoker was far less committed to his masterwork than one might assume, and there is a strong probability that it might have meant far less to him than it has come to mean to us. He follows up his claim by quoting Brahms' close friend, Hall Kane, who admitted that Stoker took no vain view of his efforts as an author. He wrote his books to sell. It's somewhat ironic that a book that he put out into the world with no real thought to its longevity would eclipse the rest of his career, and even that of the man whose star he was always in the shadow of. That, however, is just a part of the large and complicated puzzle that was the author, Bram Stoker. For a full view of Bram's life growing up in Ireland, his move into London, and the theatre life, I will direct you to the show notes and highly suggest that you pick up the biography by Skull, again called Something in the Blood. It gives you almost too much information at times, but it does provide a really sound and well-fleshed out look at the life of this author. For a quick look at some of the highlights of Stoker's life, you can also take a look at the Elizabeth Miller site, again found in the show notes. For our purposes, we aren't going to go over every minute detail of the author's life, but rather we're going to focus on some of the more interesting points to keep in mind as we move towards Stoker's vampire. Starting at the beginning, Brom was born to Charlotte and Abraham Stoker in November of 1847 in Dublin, Ireland, during the infamous Potato Famine. From a very young age, he was sickly and left entirely bedridden for most of his childhood, though no one is able to report on what it was that left him ill. Under the care of his mother, Brahm would have certainly been told many stories over the seven years that he was sick, not the least of which would have been Charlotte's own harrowing tales of growing up. The biographical article on Charlotte, provided by the Brahm Stoker estate, tells of a life filled with intense horror and tragedy from a famine not unlike the one that they were currently suffering through, and later a cholera epidemic when she was in her teens. The Skull biography elaborated on this as well, giving accounts of the things that young Charlotte saw specifically during the cholera outbreak, which affected her area the worst. She told her children of people who were so sick they were buried alive on the roadside, or corpses going into mass graves, those who were still alive muddling within the masses because the living were barely more than the dead. 
These stories would have likely resonated with young Brom, as would the Irish folk tales that were common in most Dublin households. Charlotte was also noted for being an avid reader, and very much encouraged her children to do the same. As such, growing up, Brom gained a deep appreciation for these stories, which would then lead him to a childhood love that would develop into a passion of his adult life. From a young age, the stage would play a very important role in Brahm's life, and this love would likely have started with a very popular staple of Christmas entertainment in England and Ireland. The Christmas pantomime was notable because despite the time of year that it took place, the tales that were depicted more often than not had nothing to do with the holiday. While it retained some of its trappings from its Italian counterpart that it was derived from, the Commedia dell'Arte, these panto shows mostly focused on telling fairy tales and fables that would have been familiar and popular, particularly to the children that it was intended for. This first look into theatre would have had a lasting impression on Brahm, and it was this early passion that would lead him to one of his first writing jobs, that of the unpaid theatre critic. Brahm was a voracious theatre patron during his time at Trinity College in Dublin, and even when he was working as a civil servant, he spent much of his evenings partaking in the show's playing. After being rather unsatisfied with the quality and the timeliness of the show reviews, Stoker approached the editor of the Dublin Evening Mail in 1871. He offered to write the reviews to be available the next day so that the theatre-going public would have a chance to see the critique before the play finished its run. From early on, Stoker established himself as a workaholic, carrying duties as a clerk at his day job, writing reviews at night, eventually for more than one paper, and, as of 1872, embarking on his dream to write fiction as well. His first story, Skull writes, was published in September of that year, and it was a short piece called The Crystal Cup. It would be followed up by more short stories, and Brahm would continue to build an impressive amount of work over the years, well before he wrote his signature novel in 1897. His love of the theatre would eventually pay off when he had the chance to meet one of his idols and someone who would become the most important man of his adult life. Dracula scholars have had much to say about Sir Henry Irving over the years, but ironically, it has all been relation to his manager, who at the time was not actually regarded very highly in the hierarchy of the theatre. During his time, Henry Irving was a stage actor who had gained quite a bit of public attention for his performances in shows such as The Bells or Faust, and after acquiring the Lyceum Theatre in London, he was able to take more control of his career and brought his acts on the road throughout Europe and America. He had taken notice of Stoker's reviews when the author praised Irving's acting skills, sometimes even when everyone around Brahm was offering more lukewarm or outright critical views of his performances. After meeting with Stoker and baiting him with a much more interesting position of managing the actor, as opposed to life as a civil servant, Irving successfully convinced Brahm and his new wife Florence to move from Dublin to London and enter theatre life. There's a wealth of material out there to comment on the professional and working relationship between Irving and Stoker. Some people will adamantly state that it was a job that Stoker was dedicated to, and though he was fully committed to his duties, there was nothing more than a very strong friendship between the two men. Others will posit that Stoker was utterly devoted to his employer on a more emotional level, even going so far as to say that he was in love with the man. 
being entirely fair to Bram Stoker, there's no definitive way to verify how he might have felt privately about his employer. One thing we can comment on is that from Irving's side, there is no evidence that he fostered any such relationship, nor that it was ever brought up. From Stoker's side, there is no definitive clues or confessions of his feelings, and if he was in love with Henry Irving, that is something that can only be speculated on. But we will never be able to accurately construct what kind of relationship he might have desired. That said, there's no shortage of evidence to show that Henry Irving was extremely important to Stoker. This is one of the major reasons that Henry Irving's name continually pops up in any discussion of Stoker and Dracula. There are some who claim that Irving was, in fact, the inspiration for the infamous Count. While it is doubtful that Irving was the only thing that influenced Brahm in the writing of his famous vampire, there are certain similarities that should be noted. Skull wrote that the Stokers, who had moved their wedding date ahead to accommodate Irving, and never actually got to have a honeymoon as a married couple, lived in almost chained proximity to the Lyceum. Moreover, Irving was noted as having a rather dramatic personality, to put it politely. While the Henry Irving Society website states that the working relationship between Stoker and Irving made a matchless team, even they admit that theirs was not an equal partnership. In fact, in Louis S. Warren's essay, Buffalo Bill Meets Dracula, the historian had this to say in regards to the level of inequality in their partnership. Warren wrote that Stoker seems to have been largely unappreciated by his employer and idol. Henry Irving was a self-absorbed and profoundly manipulative man, and to remain in his circle required constant, careful courting of his notoriously fickle affections. This is reinforced in the Skull biography, where the summation of the actor's character could be described as despite all the charisma he radiated, and no matter how much devotion he inspired, somehow Henry Irving knew exactly how to make you feel miserable, drained, alone, and empty. And if that were not enough to inspire vampiric thoughts about the man, Stoker also had Irving to thank for crafting the imposing image of an imposing man of darkness, who was repelled by the image of the cross. Specifically, he could thank W.G. Wills and his adaptation of Faust that was written to showcase Irving as Mephistopheles. According to Skull, this was where Stoker had latched onto the scenes of the novel where the crucifix had been used to banish the vampire. He writes that even though religious elements had been used historically against the folkloric vampires, the specific image of a crucifix held aloft to stop the approach of evil was not a set piece in vampire fiction until Stoker and the place it came from was Irving's Faust. It can't be stressed enough that these are just some of the many ingredients that went into the making of this novel, but it is safe to say that it would be somewhat impossible that Henry Irving and the world of the theatre in general wouldn't have inspired Stoker in some way. That said, it wasn't the only element that went into the creation of the vampire, or the story that would house him. In fact, there was a precedent that was set before Stoker even thought about bringing his Count into the fold, and it is worth it to give context to exactly what the public would have known or read about vampires at the time. Keep in mind, this is nowhere near a definitive list of vampire titles, even from that time. But it is good to know what kind of world Dracula made his way into. So with that, let's take a brief tour of those vampires who had paved their way before that count made his way to England. 
One would think that finding the first literary vampire would be a fairly straightforward task, yes? Well, one would be wrong, as the first vampire in literature can be a number of different figures depending on who you ask. Google suggests that it was none other than John Polidori's antagonistic jab at his former patient. While that vampire certainly does have his place in history, and an important one at that, earlier examples can be found in German poetry. One of the first to surface there was Heinrich August Ausenfelder's The Vampire, written in 1748. Another significant entry into the early German vampire club was Lenore by Gottfried August Berger, a poem from 1773 that features the line Den die Toten reiten schnell. If that line sounds familiar, it's because Stoker would quote this line directly when the peasant travelers warned Jonathan Harker of the danger coming to greet him at the Borgo Pass. Fast forward to 1797, there would be another big name in German poetry, and that would be none other than Goethe. His offering in the world of vampires is the Bride of Corinth, the poem hearkening back to an older Roman tale of an undead woman tormenting her lover. It was this tale that would, in turn, inspire Samuel Taylor Coltridge to write the thoroughly disturbing Christabel, a poem that, according to Polidori, made Percy Shelley flee the room while it was being recited when they got to the part about the vampire having eyes on her breasts instead of nipples. And speaking of Polidori and Shelley, that particular reading would have happened in 1816, or the year without a summer. Trapped indoors, during a particularly horrible and cold June, Lord Byron, Marion Percy Shelley, and John Polidori, among others, decided to pass the evenings challenging each other to write scary stories. During these sessions, Byron came up with a fragment of a tale that he never entirely fleshed out or finished. Polidori would take the idea and spin it into his own tale called The Vampire. His story featured the charismatic Lord Ruthven, who is a rather transparent and scathing depiction of Lord Byron. Ruthven often comes up as the first vampire in fiction, if only because this tale is so well known, but also because it was one of the first to show up in prose fiction. If we jump ahead just a little bit, we'll meet yet two more vampires that had been making a name for themselves in the British Isles. The first being from the Penny Dreadful series of the same name as its main star, Varney the Vampire. Given the nature of this particular story, it's very unlikely that Bram Stoker would have read it, but there is a much higher likelihood that he would have been familiar with fellow Irishman Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu and his contribution to vampire literature, Carmilla. This is a very basic whirlwind look at the world of vampires in the 19th century, and it should be noted that at best, this is a very quick and dirty list that is leaving out a lot. Each of these stories should be looked at on their own, and while I've done my best to cover as many as possible, I'm still missing quite a few. There will be additional links in the show notes to point you to other works, as well as other people who may have done the work to cover these topics for themselves. You are welcome to take a look and contrast what you learn here with what they have to offer too. And one thing that I should also clarify is that just because these works existed doesn't mean that Stoker took any interest or inspiration from them. This was all in service of giving context to the world that had been provided before Dracula made his debut. 
As we can see both from the history provided last week and this little tour through literary works, while it wasn't quite as ubiquitous as it is today, the vampire as a figure has been firmly planted in our collective consciousness and had already proven compelling enough to be popular. From this fertile ground, Stoker was free to bring his undead count to the masses, as soon as he could disentangle the story from all the ideas he'd had. We're going to tackle what happened to Stoker's notes and how even they ended up taking on a life of their own shortly here. But for now, let's get to the main event. After years of spitballing and making notes and working himself to death for the theater and trying to be a writer on the side, Stoker's novel Dracula was finally made available to the public for the first time in 1897. The story is old and most aficionados are aware of the basics, but just in case you're a little rusty or your only introduction was through the movies, we're going to go over a very short plot synopsis, as this is also a tale where watching the film will not help you when it comes to the books. And yes, I do mean books, but we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Let's get to that plot. One of the unique elements of this novel is how it is told entirely through epistolary format, which is to say that it's told in first person through multiple narrators by way of letters and journal entries. We begin reading the inner thoughts of one Jonathan Harker, a young solicitor from London, as he travels to Transylvania to put the finishing touches on a house sale in England for an eccentric nobleman. After a chilling ride up the Carpathians, Harker arrives at a castle to find his host, whom we all know as Count Dracula, and unless you are entirely new to the story, we all know to be a vampire. This is entirely news to Jonathan, however, as he is continually confused and eventually thoroughly disturbed by his host as he slowly realizes that he's wandered into a very dangerous situation. Meanwhile, his fiancée Mina is awaiting his return and passing the time at the seaside home of her society friend. Said friend, Lucy, is proposed to by three men, Dr. Jack Seward, Lord Arthur Holmwood, and Quincy Morris, the American from Texas. She chooses Arthur, but the other two aren't sidelined for long, because as Mina travels to meet Jonathan in Budapest, where he is suffering from a brain fever, Lucy suddenly falls ill. Dr. Seward is not able to figure out what is plaguing her, and sends for his mentor. Upon his arrival, Dr. Van Helsing notices the red flags and tries to prevent Lucy's transformation into a vampire covertly. When he fails, the four men are forced to kill Lucy by driving a stake into her body and decapitating her. When Mina returns, she has a meeting with Van Helsing to speak about Lucy, and she brings up Jonathan's condition. Eventually, the group realizes that the Count, who held Jonathan hostage, is the same one that lives near Dr. Seward, and the same one who attacked Lucy. They pursue him, and in retaliation, he attacks Mina. From here, it is a race to get to him before he can retreat back into his Transylvanian castle, as Mina is now in danger of suffering the same fate as Lucy. The group gives chase, and in the end, they kill the Count, but Quincy Morris is mortally wounded in the process. The book ends with Jonathan reflecting on the events seven years later. He and Mina now have a son named Quincy, and the remaining two younger men are now married as well. Everyone who survived seems to be living happily ever after. If you've never read the book, I have linked a couple of different versions in the show notes, as I highly suggest you partake. One version is for the Kindle, mostly out of convenience, though it's worth it to hunt down whatever version you are most interested in, because there are plenty of editions of this book. 
including some ebooks that have animated pages and even comic adaptations. The one I have linked is free, and you can likely find other versions in PDF searches as well. The other link is a lesser-known abridged version which features narration and backing music performed by Andy Sexgang of the pioneering death rock band The Sexgang Children. For others who would like another longer version of the audiobook, it is available on Audible as well. And now that we know the story, let's break it down and get to the things about this book that have kept people talking about it for decades. We're going to unpack this in parts, starting with the lesser-mentioned characters and working our way up to the main attraction, Dracula himself. Since that's the case, there's no better place to begin than with our trio of suitors turned vampire hunters. I'm excluding a full discussion on Van Helsing in this episode, because while he's got an important role, we see more important themes emerge with him in the adaptations. For Stoker's novel, we can comfortably lump him in with the trio of suitors known as the Crew of Light. With that established, we're going to start with none other than possibly the most important among them, Dr. John, or Jack, Seward. This character has the distinction of being both a mouthpiece for the hunters and someone who helps set the scene. Unlike Quincy or Arthur, Seward has a reason to be recording his thoughts as he's a doctor tending to an insane asylum. He gives dictation about the patients that he tends to, but he also uses it as a diary, being a bit more sensitive than the other two suitors seem. More importantly, he's also the doctor tending to the man who acts as the signal that Dracula has arrived in England, that man being Mr. R.N. Renfield. You may be disappointed to find that Renfield, interesting as he may be, is not going to be factoring into our discussion much today. That said, he has a very dynamic role that we will be looking at coming up in the next episode and beyond, but for the purposes of the book, he is a character that just adds some color and context where it's needed, and really nothing more. That said, his obsession with consuming lives is what fascinates Seward, and it's his dictated journal entries that give us a glimpse of how, though unseen, Dracula has already been working to infiltrate English civil life. Of the many layers that scholars have looked at when it comes to this book, one major element present is the fear of what Dracula's invasion represents. What Seward is recording through his interactions and observations of Renfield is the same decline of the West that H.P. Lovecraft had feared. Skull outlines in his biography about how Darwin's theory of evolution had been sitting on the minds of many in the Victorian period, and one of their biggest fears, that would have been quite widespread when Stoker was writing, was that holding a place at the top of the evolutionary chain was precarious at best. It was believed that any unapproved or uncivilized behaviors were likely to cause one to regress and transform into something more beastly and feral. History fans will likely note also how this fear was used to demonize people of color, particularly black people, creating the false narrative that anyone who didn't fall in line with the ideals of the time period, both in terms of whiteness and adherence to accepted social behavior, were no better than animals. This is something we're going to come back to shortly when we look at one of the major deaths of the book. But there is more to be said about our suitors who play into this fear in ways we might not always hear about, specifically the lone American in the group. Quincy P. Morris is not someone who gets a whole lot of attention in Van Helsing's so-called crew of light. 
To be fair, he's not given much to do in the story, aside from provide a few plot elements, and round out the men who pursue Dracula after Lucy's death. That said, Morris's role in the book does encompass more for the story than the film adaptations would lead you to believe. His presence also tells us quite a bit about why he is the only American to be featured in Stoker's story. To begin with, he's coded as being an acceptable outsider, but he's still an outsider. Take for instance how, in many respects, he's almost a foil to the proper English perfection that is Arthur Holmwood. They do share quite a bit in common, both being strapping men with quite a lot of wealth at their disposal, formally educated and world travelers. That said, where Arthur is set to become and graduates to Lord status in the book, granting him quite a bit of power over his American counterpart, Quincy is kind of relegated to a novelty until he's useful to the story. Lucy herself describes the Texan as being a nice fellow who is really well-educated and has exquisite manners, but he found out that it amused her to hear him talk American slang, and whenever she was present and there was no one to be shocked, he said such funny things. It's worth noting his speech patterns here because it shows that Morris was well aware that eloquent speech was something that mattered to the Brits, and had the capability of making him into a pariah despite his wealth. In recent times, we don't really think about this much unless someone is using a particularly offensive stereotypical kind of speech. But in Victorian England especially, your class was often indicated by how well you could speak, and whether or not you had the approved accent. This would have been very noticeable to Stoker, who never entirely lost his Irish accent, even when his contemporaries, like Oscar Wilde, worked to suppress any hint of their connection to the Emerald Isle. That said, while it was well established that there was a lot of hostility towards the Irish in England, Americans presented a very different challenge to their way of life, something they were less sure of how to approach, and that is reflected in Morris. It's not an accident that Quincy is the odd man out most of the time, nor that he is the only member of the group other than Lucy to die. It rarely gets mentioned aside from one of the future adaptations that we'll be getting to, but Morris has more in common with the Count than one might remember. During their discussion after they realize what it is they're dealing with, Quincy offers up the tale of how he'd had an encounter with a vampire bat previously in South America. It's a tiny detail, but it serves not only to connect the flapping of wings to the things that had been going on with Lucy, as well as a means of connecting Quincy to the vampire. It's never outwardly stated in any way, but it goes to show that Morris isn't entirely free of the same kind of suspicion that's wrapped around the Count. After all, he's an outsider from a foreign place, and while he is eager to place himself on the side of good in the narrative, this lone detail does set him apart and makes us question him in a way that we never would with the English characters, or even Van Helsing. Going back to what Louis S. Warren had to say on the matter in his paper Buffalo Bill Meets Dracula, he wrote that, like those who worried that Americans might be too close to non-white peoples, to the frontier, to remain white, the novel Dracula depicts the frontier as the near edge of racial transformation that threatens British civilization. In short, while Dracula is presenting a threat of hostile takeover by the East, Quincy represents the edge that threatens to tip the scales and send people back down that evolutionary ladder if they aren't careful. Warren goes on to say, in regards to Dracula, that what makes him so very dangerous is that he has a lust for blood befitting a frontier warrior, and that good people cannot tell he is a monster. 
The source of these talents is the too permeable frontier line, that too fragile division between light-skinned civilizers and dark-skinned savages, whose congenital race hatreds can give way without notice to interracial sex. While he's speaking of the vampire here, it's not hard to see why this could also be applied to our gun-toting Texan. As one of Lucy's suitors, he was not only looking to marry her, thus taking a good English woman away from the homeland and creating new Americanized babies with her, he was also someone who gave his blood to her when she was attacked. Because he was such a loaded character with these fears of what the West could represent, there really wasn't much of a choice in whether or not he could survive. In order to be maintained as a redeemed, if slightly threatening, hero, he had to die. And he wasn't the only one. Any discussion on Dracula needs to eventually come to the women of this story, specifically the roles given to the virtuous Mina and the doomed Lucy. Though we technically meet the two at the same time, we're given at least some insight, however small, into Mina first. And that is where we will start, because it sets the tone for her character. In the narrative, we initially only know about Mina through Jonathan's journals. But even then, he speaks of her kind of fleetingly. His mentions are all of a more practical nature, referring more to getting recipes for her to cook for him or having his diary delivered to her if he's killed. In some respects, this might seem unremarkable or even a bit on the ordinary side. After all, she's his fiance and has been for a while, presumably, and he would be more likely to be commenting on the new and odd things going on around him. That said, what you don't really read about in his musings is anything about how he misses her or anything about what she might have enjoyed if she were traveling with him. She makes a remark herself about having some interest in traveling together, but such things never come up in his journal at all. This becomes much more pronounced when we meet the Count himself. From the point that Harker leaves his lodgings to go to the Borgo Pass until he is prompted to write to his loved ones, Mina never comes up once. Even when she does, his narrative choices all revolve around her either being someone to help him or he mentions her in these bloodless farewell posts, as he assumes that he will die, and this is his last attempt to communicate with the world. This is particularly telling of Mina's role in the story, as his writings in his personal journal are utterly devoid of any kind of passion or even affectionate mentions of her. That isn't to say that he doesn't seem like he cares for her, but Mina's role is that of the good, virtuous Victorian wife. She carries the burden of the house to uphold and to support Jonathan, which she does a great deal, as we shall see. Even by her own letters to Lucy, her interest is in working with Jonathan and becoming better at skills to support his endeavors. She doesn't mention her life as a schoolmistress or anything related to that, whether she loves it or hates it, if she'll miss it, or if she cares for anything further. Even when she's attacked, her major interest is not in her own fate, but rather the good of the men, and particularly Jonathan. Lucy, meanwhile, has some pointedly different interests entirely. One of the things that has come up more than once is how Lucy's character has been done a great disservice by the adaptations that followed Stoker's book, and this isn't entirely wrong. When Lucy's character has been included, more often than not, the focus is on the suitors and their perception of her. Over the course of the narrative, their view of her changes from a sweet young girl who is seemingly more than just a little naive, to the trope of the idealistic dying woman, to a character that Brahm would have called openly wanton. 
Her initial letters to Mina show that she is immature, but not in any kind of offensive way, and far from the coquette that she would become later on. That said, the future adaptations were not pulling their understanding of this character from nowhere. It should be noted that in Stoker's book, Lucy's letter openly states that she is very much interested in Arthur Holmwood and hoping to get a proposal from him, but she also showcases that she cares for the other two men. At this point, many people have quoted the line where Lucy says, why can't they let a girl marry three men, or as many want her, and save all this trouble, as a kind of horrible foreshadowing of what is to become of her. It could be argued that Lucy sealed her fate with such a wish, as it was through Dracula that it was granted. When Lucy fell ill, she was given blood by not only Arthur, who considered it a kind of spiritual marriage, but also Dr. Seward, Quincy Morris, and even Van Helsing at one point. Van Helsing even goes on to say that it's like she did marry the four of them, their blood circulating in her veins. But that alone would have meant that there was no way to keep her alive in this story. Once Lucy had been turned into a vampire, she becomes the subversion of all the things that Mina represents in her idealistic form. Where Mina becomes a mother in the end, Lucy preys on children. Where the Harkers have a relationship that seems devoid of passion, Lucy is the one to beg Arthur for kisses and nearly manages to seduce him. Ultimately, where Mina plays by the rules that her gender sets for her, granting her the reward of normalcy and family life, Lucy is dispatched by her very suitors and eventually forgotten. We're going to get into more of Lucy's treatment when we get to the other adaptations, but there's something else that makes her character and her death important in Stoker's book. Namely, how it allows the men to perform the correct gender roles of the time period, while also allowing them to experience other, more taboo interactions. This is true also for Jonathan Harker and his explorations of Castle Dracula. In both cases, the men of the narrative are brought closer together through an abject female body. With the crew of light, it was their communal ruined bride, moved from an innocent girl to a monster, forcing them to give their blood, and finally to come together as one to drive a stake into her body. With Jonathan, it was the encounter with the three imposing brides that threaten to bite him when he falls asleep in a different room. These brides are never seen as anything but monsters, and they, like Lucy, are active agents. Each woman who has been made into a vampire is threatening to give these men kisses that will weaken their will and their bodies. For a deeper look at this, we can turn to the paper Kiss Me With Those Red Lips by Christopher Kraft, who wrote about this gender disparity in Dracula. One of the things that he opens with, and a good thing to keep in mind, was the rigid and unforgiving roles that gender and sexuality played out in public and in private during Victorian times. Kraft quotes John Ruskin in summing up that the roles for men were active, progressive, defensive, he is eminently the doer, the creator, the discoverer, the defender, while the role of women is relegated to being endurably, incorruptibly good, instinctively, infallibly wise. Wise not for self-development, but for self-renunciation. An important point that Kraft brings up in this discussion is when Jonathan Harker is set upon by the three brides, whom he refers to as daughters, and how they act to invert the understood gender and sexual norms of the time. Here these three women appear before their male captive, and he is put into a position where he is not only reduced to a passive spectator, but also in danger of being the recipient of a kind of penetration from their prominent teeth. 
The idea of it is both terrifying and arousing to Harker, both in Stoker's Dracula and in translations that we'll be getting to next time. The question of agency is something that we should review now, as it factors into every character that we've seen so far, and sets up to discuss our poor gothic hero of the novel, Jonathan Harker. In relation to the women, we've already touched on it somewhat. The dichotomy set up between Mina and Lucy showcases the change in the two women and the threat of what Barbara Creed referred to as the monstrous feminine. For the unfamiliar, the very quick definition of this is when women are depicted as acting out of character for their accepted gender roles. They are cast as antagonists or monsters to express the anxieties of those women who are challengers to the patriarchal ideals. In the case of Mina versus Lucy, both women begin as embodying their roles, though they come at it differently. For Mina, as an assistant schoolmistress, she is preparing to leave that position to better fill the role of wife to Jonathan, facilitating his career by developing skills that will help him. Lucy, on the other hand, exhibits the ideals of the aristocracy. She seemingly has no interests, hobbies, or ambitions, save to get married, and she dutifully waits for her beloved to propose to her. In this instance, both women are doing the acceptable passive things expected of them, with Mina going the extra step of learning a whole new skill set to help her husband. This differs, however, when each woman is attacked. In the case of Lucy, her passivity becomes the uniting force for the men, but her illness also requires their sacrifice to her. It's a subtle shift, but one that becomes more pronounced when she becomes a vampire, and her desperate need for blood is now taking the form of a demand. There is no such need of a blood sacrifice for Mina, however, who remains ever steadfast in her ability to maintain Kraft's endurably, incorruptibly good ideal. Despite the fact that Dracula did in fact corrupt her with his blood, she uses the aftermath of her own trauma to better serve the men in their quest to kill the vampire. In these attacks, the blood exchanges create a threatening power imbalance through women's bodies. Mina rejects it, but Lucy and the vampire brides of Castle Dracula either accept or were forced to submit to this change, and were made into monstrous beings who could not only demand, but also overpower the will of men. There is more to these monstrous women, however, than simply becoming more alluring and demanding. In fact, these female vampires are holding within their bodies the possibility for a much bigger taboo than defying their own gender roles. We're going back to Kraft again, this time to talk about how the act of the unholy communion of the blood exchange is technically conducted through the body of a woman, but the blood is not really all hers. When Lucy begins her decline into illness, death, and vampirism, as mentioned before, her suitors all volunteer their blood to save her, bonding them all in a kind of awkward marriage. The end result is that these men are all wedded to a puppet bride, as all of their blood has been going to an entirely different male endpoint. Kraft writes, Here emphatically is another instance of heterosexual displacement of a desire mobile enough to elude boundaries of gender. Everywhere in this text, such desire seeks a strangely deflected heterosexual distribution. Only through women may men touch. It may seem like a bit of a stretch, but there is logic to this theory. The only victims that are made into vampires, despite the men being the active pursuers of Dracula, are the women. This means that only the women have been subject to the blood exchange, and their bodies are the ones that are marked as being okay to act upon. 
Their bodies can also be seen as a connection that wouldn't allow these men to bond otherwise. This becomes even more clear when Mina is attacked and forced to drink Dracula's blood. This is read as an attack on Harker as revenge for his meddling in the Count's affairs, but if that was the case, there's no reason the vampire couldn't have attacked Jonathan instead, nor is there any obstacle to killing both of them. In this instance, Jonathan is rendered a spectator yet again, and Dracula is able to punch him while leaving his body completely untouched. At this point, we should take a look at Jonathan Harker and the role he plays. Up to now, we've been talking about agency as it's viewed in regards to the women, but this is something that affects the men too, particularly Harker. When Lucy has demanded kisses from Arthur and has transformed into a kind of nightmare mother figure, feeding off of small children, the men falter initially to her beauty. Arthur nearly succumbs to her more than once, and it is only through their fellowship to each other that they're able to preserve the status quo. The end result, Arthur nearly succumbs to her more than once, and it's only through their fellowship to each other that they're able to preserve the status quo. The end result is that she has to be killed. Their communal bond is strengthened yet again through her body, this time to pay witness to its destruction, and ending the attack that would leave them weakened to her monstrous will. The only odd man out here is Jonathan, though his experiences are nearly identical in some ways. When he's in Castle Dracula, there is no fellowship to take strength from, and the only bond he makes to any other male figure is Dracula. Upon rereading the novel, as well as many other iterations of it, I had jokingly made notes to myself that Jonathan was like the gothic heroine of this novel, and almost always comes off as such. While the statement can be chalked up to my terrible sense of humor, there is something to this idea beyond a bad joke. Harker is the person whose point of view we are entirely privy to through his introduction to his host and our main antagonist. More than this, there's a kind of wide-eyed wonder that he records his journey with. Jonathan is eager to note recipes and finer details of things that excite or confuse him on his way to his destination. And once he arrives, he may be the guest and prisoner of Castle Dracula, but to us, the audience, he's our host. He details everything, effectively setting the atmosphere, but also acting very much like those gothic heroines of the other stories, as he searches this dangerous and very mysterious castle and acts to uncover its sinister secrets for us. More than this, he brings the Count to life for us. He is cast exclusively as our main character for almost a third of the book, and his insights are the only ones that allow Dracula to speak, really. The only exception to this is when Dr. Seward describes the attack on Mina, and he records the vampire's threatening response back to the men when they interrupted him. This means that the only time that Dracula is recorded as being purely, observably monstrous is through Seward's eyes. Jonathan's journal paints a much more nuanced figure that is just as seductive in some ways as he is frightening. As my friend and folklore scholar Lily Gulsev noted, Dracula has much in common with different versions of the fairy tale Beauty and the Beast. I'll be getting to her observations more when we talk about different movie adaptations, but even in the book, we can make an argument as to how the vampire acts very much like the beastly bridegroom for his unwitting guest. Harker also has more than just a little in common with the young protagonist of that fairy tale. Sent in the stead of his elder colleague, whom he sees as a father figure, Jonathan arrives at the castle and is left to his own devices throughout the day. In Stoker's version, 
Harker never sees any servants or has any kind of meaningful interactions with anyone but Dracula. He comes to dine by himself at tables that were set while he wasn't looking, and his evening conversations are with a monster that is hiding in the guise of a man. What's more, he's teaching this monster how to better become a man. Their conversations are framed as an aid to help the Count with his English, thereby changing him from foreigner to someone who's able to fit in within higher society in London. While this can be seen as Dracula playing host, we know from reading between the lines that the vampire has also acted as protector of Jonathan on multiple occasions, including when he dismisses the wolf and saved Jonathan from the brides. As a beastly figure, Dracula is at once repulsive to Jonathan, especially in how he looks and smells. The young man recoils at his breath and takes note of the strange hair growing in the center of his palms. It is through Jonathan that Dracula is civilized, the vampire even going on to take the young lawyer's clothing. But unlike the monster in the fairy tale, his beastly nature is not at all changed. That said, about the only person who is truly safe from the vampire, even if he is terrified of him, is Jonathan. This naturally leads us to talk about that scene that we've alluded to a few times now, the attack on Jonathan by the three vampire brides. We see Jonathan is both excited but simultaneously repulsed by these women, but what of Dracula's response? There's no sense that the Count cares or has any interest in these women. He doesn't engage with them or act out of jealousy that their attention is elsewhere. On the contrary, as has been pointed out many, many times over the years, his real anger is over the fact that said brides tried to seduce and bite Harker. What's more, the often quoted line, this man belongs to me, is something that clearly had a profound meaning to Stoker, because according to Skull's biography, when a typist for the novel attempted to change the line, he emphatically corrected it to say those words exactly. Skull also made note that Dracula, despite his claim on Jonathan Harker, never actually touches him despite the obvious want to, as showcased when the young man cuts himself shaving. Christopher Kraft highlights how Stoker then dealt with the growing tension between the two men, writing that, always postponed and never directly enacted, this desire finds evasive fulfillment in an important series of heterosexual displacements. And this is exactly why the vampire had to attack Mina. Jonathan remains someone who is in constant danger of, but is never the direct recipient of the vampire's true beastly nature. And I believe there is no better introduction we could give to the main attraction. After all, the name that we always come back to this story for is Dracula. Stoker really understood that the best way to present a good, tense, gothic threat was to do it through sleight of hand. As we've already seen, Dracula never once speaks for himself. His dialogue is presented almost entirely through Jonathan's journals. More than this, his actions are all relegated to things that people witness, or, much more often, what people see the aftermath of. Because of this, his presence lingers over the whole narrative like a long shadow. Because people are so familiar with the idea of Dracula, it's easy to lose perspective on how insidious his plans were, and how horrifying his acts in the book actually are. If we look at his interactions with Jonathan Harker first, he begins their relationship playing at being friendly and welcoming, but there's no warmth in his portrayal. Though he takes care to provide for and protect Harker, he is also very clearly having fun manipulating him. In a particularly telling scene, when Dracula informs Jonathan that he will have to wait another day before a promised carriage will bring him to the village, and thus back home, 
Harker balks at the need to spend another night in the castle after being kept there for over a month. When the young lawyer musters his courage to walk to the village instead, Dracula brings him to the open gates and lets him hear the wolves howling until Jonathan is in tears and relents. It's a curious gesture because by this point, Dracula has everything he wanted. The paperwork on his house is finalized and everything has been paid for. He has had many hours of conversation with Jonathan to the point where his English is to his satisfaction, presumably. Even that is never really remarked upon, because he only speaks to the other men that once. Jonathan had even done as he was instructed and written the letters to be sent off to Mr. Hawkins and Mina, knowing full well that it meant that it would delay anyone coming to find him until long after the date of that last letter. By that point in the story, Harker had been all but used up, so why keep him alive? Because we never get Dracula's actual point of view on the matter, we can never be sure why he kept his captive alive, and why he wouldn't have just drained the lawyer himself. If that wasn't an option, he clearly had the brute strength to force Harker into the room with the brides, and allowed them to do their worst, which they were clearly more than okay to do. Even at the time when Jonathan is set upon by the brides, there's really no reason to stop them from killing him, other than he didn't necessarily want Jonathan to die. As for why that might be, Kraft commented on this odd relationship between the two, saying that the sexual threat that the novel first evokes, manipulates, sustains, but never finally represents, is that Dracula will seduce, penetrate, and drain another male. Given what we know about the infamously sexually repressed time period, and how only two years prior Oscar Wilde had been tried for gross indecency, with the picture of Dorian Gray being used as damning evidence to convict him, it was clear that there is absolutely no way that Dracula could physically lay a hand on Jonathan Harker. What could slip by, however, was the subtle seduction leading to the monstrous revelation both in Dracula's nature and to some degree in Harker's. From the time that Dracula leaves the castle and Jonathan is forced to make the harrowing attempt to flee by the steep wall to escape the brides, the former becomes almost a ghostly presence and the latter disappears from the narrative for a good chunk of the story. For his part in England, Dracula has more or less abandoned his polite society persona, spending his time in hiding and feeding off of Lucy. The method by which he does this is made all the more creepy when we remember that when he's in London, initially he never appears to anyone in the story, unlike how the movies made it look. Lucy would hear flapping at the window at night and assume she'd had a nightmare before waking up feeling sick. Even the more overt attack, where a wolf jumps through her window, isn't something that can be pinned directly on the Count. From the time of her death, Lucy becomes the agent by which we see what he can do. She becomes both the aftermath of his attack, as well as an illustration of it, when she's feeding on the children. What's interesting about this is while Lucy's victims all mention and are taken in by the allure of her beauty, Dracula does not even try to seduce anyone in England. He clearly has the skills to do so, but chooses not to. Of course, he was busy at the time plotting the downfall of the Western world, and that left very little time for romance, implied or otherwise. While later adaptations play with the reason that Dracula made his long trek to England, the book leaves really no room for interpretation. This is most definitely a mission of conquest, and one that the Count has been planning for a very long time long enough that he has effectively taught himself the language and familiarized himself with everything from geography to politics. 
What's more is that even if his conversations with Harker were a ploy to keep the young man prisoner for his own amusement, it shows a certain amount of understanding that he would never have been taken seriously as a powerful figure if he were marked as a foreigner. His long game also included a planned spread of his Children of the Night. The boxes of Earth that make the journey with him are both a means of mobility, allowing him safe spaces in scattered areas to prevent him getting stopped if he is discovered in one, and an effective strategy for building multiple nests of influence. Considering what we see in Lucy's behavior, he's already started building that web, and she isn't simply attacking one child, but feeding on multiple children, their stories being readily dismissed. If he were allowed to continue his reign of terror, he may have had Lucy spreading what seemed like a strange plague to the young children, while someone else was draining other victims in different parts of the city. And given that we get all of our information from the hunters of the story, it begs the question of whether or not Lucy and Mina were his only victims. After all, Lucy fed on a different child every night, and there were some nights that the hunters were able to thwart Dracula's attempts to feed on her. There was also a gap between Lucy's death and Mina's attack, and at least one instance where Jonathan and Mina witnessed a count seemingly lusting after a woman in Piccadilly. We can also bring to mind how easily Dracula gave up his posts, saying that he had the time to wait. What's to say that he hadn't been attacking other people and allowing their vampiric infections to simply sit and wait for their death? All of this is clearly in service to the xenophobic idea of the East coming to take over the Western way of life, and echoing those same fears that were present in regards to Quincy Morris. In Louis S. Warren's Buffalo Bill Meets Dracula, he quotes Stephen Arata, who made the observation that Dracula's attack on London transforms the imperial power, and the colonizer finds himself in the position of the colonized. This would have shaken readers back in the day, and still can get under the skin of some now, for a number of reasons, not the least of which is because Dracula's most antagonistic qualities are ones that can't be seen. His otherness, be it his foreigner status or his implied queerness, are wrapped up quite nicely in someone who can appear as a normal white man. Without the overt signifiers of skin color or accents or obvious trappings of a different religion or grouping, Dracula is capable of embodying everything that society demands of him, but is still capable of spreading his monstrous influence undetected. And unlike Quincy, he's not only intent on a hostile takeover of England, he might very well have had his sights set even further. And if Stoker had lived longer, he might well have tried before Hollywood got a hold of him. We've looked quite a bit into the Skull biography this time around, and we'll likely take a few more jumps back into what he uncovered about Brahm in the following episodes. But to end off on that book for this episode, we're going to turn back to a claim that he reported on from writer and former Massachusetts Senator Roger Sherman Hoare that Dracula may not have died at the end of the book, and had been interested in coming to American soil. In the same paragraph, Skull also commented that, included in Stoker's notes, there was a clipping about the vampires of New England from 1896. He may not have known specifically about Mercy Brown, but it shows that he was aware of what was happening and, may or may not, have had at least a few thoughts on the matter based on his travels to America. Skull also noted in this passage that, though Dracula was ancient enough to crumble to dust like his brides, unlike them, his body was not subject to the same torturous rituals that any of the female vampires were. In fact, 
You might even say that his death was slightly lackluster. In the original ending for the novel, Castle Dracula came down in a massive explosion, definitively ending the reign of the Count. In the published version, however, the action ends when Jonathan Harker finally overcomes his foe and slashes his throat, while Quincy Morris puts a bowie knife, not a stake, in his chest. There are no solemn prayers at the coffin, or even the need to fully cut off his head. There's no foaming blood spurting from his mouth, as even his own brides had done. Granted, the group was being pursued and actively fighting off the Romani people who were loyal to Dracula at the same time, so it would have been likely difficult to pray over a body while dodging bullets. That said, there is something to say about the lack of blood in his death. After all, Dracula had been feeding fairly regularly in England, and it didn't take them that long to return to Transylvania. There's basically nothing to his death at all, and he doesn't even put up a struggle, much like when he's caught in London. He just crumbles to dust, not unlike riding on moonbeams or becoming a fog, which we know he can absolutely do. There's a lot of speculation that this ending left the door open for Dracula to re-emerge, and it was even capitalized on in another adaptation that we may or may not get to later. Does this ending mean that Brahm had intended to write another Dracula novel? It's hard to say, and impossible to guess. What one person may have heard might well just be another story, like the often repeated urban legend that this vampire tale that has drawn us back again and again was all just the result of a nightmare caused by too much seafood. Thank you all very much for coming with me for this special episode of the Armchair Scholar's Guide and my look at Bram Stoker and his novel Dracula. I think by now I've hammered home that this is a huge topic, and I could never do it justice all by myself, even if I had a year of episodes planned. Also, because this is such a huge fictional character, I think it would be a disservice to rely only on one source for it. I am going to be linking more content creators in the show notes who've tackled this story and given their take on it so that you can get more of your Dracula fix from other voices. While I don't always agree with everything everyone says, I think there's value in all of these sources, and I think that it's always worth it to explore other points of view on a theme as big as vampires, or Dracula in particular. I also stress that one person can only comment on or concentrate on so much. What my analysis might lack, someone else might have picked up on something interesting that you might like to explore as well. So please do yourself a favor, and if you're itching to know more about this sinister vampire account, absolutely check out the other podcasts and YouTube channels recommended in the show notes. Remember that we're on the special schedule, so next week we'll have another brand new episode again. So far, we've seen the vampire become a mysterious count in a gothic castle in the land beyond the forest by stealing the name of a brutal prince. Next time, we're going to see that Count make his way from the confines of Stoker's novel to different countries, different media, and work his way to the very profitable silver screen that would become his new home. So until next week, remember to keep studying, and wherever possible, let curiosity be your guide.